And we must keep that proviso in mind as we study the rest of this passage. Okay? He's talking to active Christians who are doing what they should be doing. Jesus knows also, however, that they have very little strength. They're neither particularly well gifted nor resourced, nor are they impressive or significant in their local town. Moreover, there's opposition to deal with. None of this is alien even to a modern local church. This phrase, little strength or little power, implies powerlessness and discouragement, and it's very relatable to a lot of Christians today. If only I, we had more money and material means, what could we achieve if we had more help around the church and in Sunday school and outreach? If only I, we were less timid talking to others about Jesus, had greater get-up-and-go and had just the right words to say. What must God think of me, of us? Is he disappointed? Well, don't judge a book by its cover, they say. You see, second up, Jesus isn't disappointed. In fact, he's full of praise in this instance, because despite the discouragement, they are spiritually impressive on the inside, having three outstanding virtues that Jesus mentions. Verse 8b, they have kept the word of Jesus. Many towns across the world have Christian churches, but not all have gospel churches who hold to biblical doctrine, but have instead bent their message to conform to the public agenda of the day. Remember Thyatira a couple of weeks ago who buckled like the Church of England's in danger of doing at the moment, right now. 8b, they've also not denied the name of Jesus. This implies they were under pressure to do so. That they, so they, they take the heat of it, though, and they do so with grace. And then 10a, they have patiently endured. Life was difficult for them especially with the opposition of the synagogue. Despite that, they've not left the faith, not left the church for one where the grass might look a bit greener, but stuck with one another, doubled down, prayed, helped out for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Well, in response to such faithfulness, little Philadelphia gets the longest list of promises of all the churches here. Six promises. And thinking about this small group of believers so long ago, with little recognition that hardly anybody notices, you know, it put me uh, in mind of all those little small village churches up and down this country, where a tiny band of faithful, true believers is holding out against a tsunami of godless secularism and keeping the churches open and Bibles open for business. Don't they deserve a pat on the back? Anyway, before we impute all these uh, wondrous qualities of Philadelphia on ourselves, 
Let's just ask, are we as individuals and as a congregation committed to the gospel as taught by the apostles? Hopefully, are we going to a home group and studying the Bible regularly? Well, if not, let me encourage you to reignite your first love, as one of the other letters says. Do we mingle and blend into life around us so as not to cause offence? Do we keep quiet about Jesus? Again, let's encourage one another to be brave, to give it a go. You might be surprised how easy it is to get to talk to people about Jesus. They are interested. And are we patiently walking through the downs of church life at CCB as well as the ups? Or are you giving up? Again, let's encourage each other to keep going. Well, the third point to make about this church is this. They're entrusted and rewarded. Now, in the Roman world, Philadelphia was known as the city of the open door. And Jesus uses this image in verse 8 where he says, I have placed before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, this open door here has a double meaning. Firstly, it's an invitation to mission. Jesus is working behind the scenes to make sure that nothing is going to hinder and stop the work of this church. Mission doors will remain open. That's encouraging, isn't it, for one thing? What about the the doors that God's opened for us at CCB? Or for you personally? What about new doors? It's always good to pray that those doors we have open stay open and to pray that new doors will open. Secondly, this door image is a door of access to Jesus. And it's it's access in two ways. In one respect, it's the door of heaven that Jesus is describing. As God's people, they are 100% safe in him. Their future secured. The death problem solved. Next, to use a work analogy, and I'm sorry if um, you don't like it very much, but I couldn't think of a better one. It's also like an open door to to Jesus' office. Through prayer and the Holy Spirit, we have permanent access to Jesus himself to his resources, and to his authority. Well, when things are, 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 are getting you down and it's tough going, I wonder how many of us take advantage of that privilege to go and talk to Jesus. Do we tell him our difficulties and ask him to help? I think we'd be surprised at the number of people who go to talk to somebody else first, Talk to Jesus first. It was a good reminder for me when I was studying this. Well, this image of the unmovable door is just what we need, isn't it, to remind us that we're God's children with a real two-way relationship. Like any child, he wants us to come, talk to him, cry on his shoulder even. Perhaps at times where you're really frustrated... Vent your disappointment and your frustration at him. 
He can take it. And he cares for us deeply. And he wants our spiritual success. The shortcomings and disadvantages we face now are as nothing when looked at from God's perspective. Nothing is so difficult it can't be resolved. Well, perhaps your experience is that although you have poured yourself out like that in prayer already, heaven seems awfully quiet. Nothing's happening and you wonder if Jesus, well, does he care? Maybe you even wonder if he actually can resolve things for you. And with that in mind, we're going to turn to our second heading, the powerful saviour. And we're going back a verse to verse 7 this time. Now, if there's a picture here of a small, powerless church, so too there is a description of a Jesus who is very mighty and powerful, one with great authority. So look at the ways that Jesus describes himself in this verse 7. Firstly, he is holy or the holy one. That's the way God is typically refers to himself in the Old Testament. So Jesus is assuring us he is the one real God on the throne of heaven that we meet in chapter 4. He has also all the authority that implies. Secondly, he is true, or the true one. Like us, Philadelphians lived in a world of religious fakes and snake oil salesmen, all offering to reveal the answer to life and death, but actually giving us no such thing. It's all false. But Jesus is the real deal, genuine, truthful, trustworthy, able to deliver exactly what he says he will. No broken promises here. And he really does care and is more involved than we might imagine. Thirdly, he holds this key of David. Now, a key in Scripture is again an image of authority. And here it means Jesus is the ultimate king. And it's a key for a real door with a real purpose. It's the key to heaven. The king of all is also judge of all. King Jesus is the only decision maker when it comes to who is admitted to heaven and who isn't. When he opens the door to someone, no one can keep them out of his kingdom. And if he shuts the door of his kingdom on someone... There's nothing and there is no one who can open that door and let them in. Also, do notice here the number of times Jesus says in this, uh, this letter, I have or I will. I, I counted eight. You see, primarily it's not their church, it's his church. Christ's church isn't so much our church or not just our church alone. alone. It's his church. He's the head of the church. It's easy to think that Jesus is distant, isn't it? But he brings all his power and authority right into the heart of the local church. Because open doors 
allow people to move two ways. And Jesus comes out of that office, rolls up his sleeves, and works with us. He's fully involved. And I, again, find that immensely encouraging. Jesus must be central, mustn't he? And we need to keep faith in Jesus and remain faithful to Jesus. And what I mean by that is we love him and we do what he asks of us by ensuring that we keep him close and up front at all times. And I think we can all commit to doing that out of thankfulness for what he did for us. Well, uh, thirdly, the uh, heading is a blessed church, verses 9 to 13. And having already thought about the promise of the open door, let's look at some of the other promises that Jesus makes. Firstly, assurance that they are God's true people. In verse 9, he pledges to deal with this synagogue of Satan, people opposing the church. Now, Jesus is a Jew. He's not anti-Semitic, but he is anti-sin. These Jews were claiming that they and not the Christians were God's true people, perhaps understandably. But they are denying Jesus, their long-promised Messiah. And now he's come they're pushing him away. What the Holy Spirit is saying here is to be a true Jew is to accept Jesus. For there is no other name by which we must be saved, says Peter, another Jew, in Acts 4.12 on the day of Pentecost. I wonder if you find yourself doubting the truth of Christianity at times, when humanists and the like and the world religions tell us that we're being stupid, gullible people falling for a fantasy. After all, it's, this message is shoved down our throats day and night, isn't it, by the press, the media and our culture. But you can rest assured like the Jewish Old Testament allusions used here, all the promises of Jesus are for people who call Jesus Lord, who do recognize Jesus. No one else. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him, period. If Jesus is your Lord, be encouraged. Uh, secondly, persecution. You know, we're right, aren't we, to want protection from persecution and from hardship. But what's actually being promised here by Jesus when he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial? Well, it's a promise that uh, echoes Jesus' own prayer in John 1715, where he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. It's not a promise to keep us from harm, but to keep us safe through harm until glory. After all, we're not protected from physical death, 
but through death to life. And that's an important distinction. Then there's a promise of a place prepared in heaven. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus reassures the, the, the Philadelphians of this. And they're not just, you'll notice, a part of the proverbial furniture, but Jesus describes them as a structural part of the very building itself. And it's reminiscent of, of Peter's description in his first letter of the church being built of living stones. And then uh, five and six promises a crown and a name of influence and significance is promised. Identity and significance by being God's own loved family, being inhabitants of the heavenly home, brides of Christ who will bear his name. You see, they don't deny his name. Jesus doesn't deny them and gives them his name. And these names amount to a contractual seal, a guarantee. These are things no one can take away, no door shut against. You may feel insignificant, but you belong to the creator God and are a member of his royal family. That's the reality as a Christian. Press on Philadelphia. Jesus will not fail the faithful Christian and Christian church like you. Well, finally, just a few closing remarks. We must be careful how we measure strength and weakness or success and failure. This letter helps us see success in the Christian journey through the eyes of Jesus instead of our own because our own eyes are unreliable. And we shouldn't mistake disappointing or downright tough physical circumstances with the health of our spiritual walk. If your faith is holding and you're doing what you can to serve Christ out of thankfulness, then you're doing just fine. Just because you feel downbeat and like a failure doesn't mean that in the eyes of the Lord, of the most important judge, you are. But this works the other way round too. Just because you feel strong and effective, perhaps, doesn't mean Jesus agrees. Proceed with caution. Next point, don't neglect the small things. We shouldn't underestimate anything we do for God or for the running of the church. They may seem very inconsequential, and the impact of, of them in the short run may be tiny, but over the years of patient service, they can amount to a very great deal indeed. You or I may only ever talk in our Christian lives to a small handful of people about Jesus Perhaps only one person comes to faith with our help. But doing something in return for all he's done for us, however small, delights him. Be encouraged and at least have a go. And then thirdly, be a Christian and be the church. As a Christian, you influence the world by being just that. As a local church, we influence the world by being the church, 
being just what God has called us to be in return for what he's done. That's what impresses. That's what brings success, true success. Start compromising with the world and all that distinctiveness and attractiveness is lost. And we waste all that power that Jesus brings by his word. Well, we'll finally get to the title that I gave the talk this morning as we leave the very last word to the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Jesus said to me, to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Shall we pray that for ourselves? Father, so often we feel that we've let you down, that we're not achieving, that we're not successful, that somehow that message is not getting out there. But Lord, help us to keep you close, keep you central, to do what we can and how we can and to allow you to measure what is going on, but to be ever willing and to boast of you, not ourselves. Amen. Amen.